I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Blood. It runs through our veins, but when it's outside of our bodies, it can be used to tell a story. Traces of blood left at the scene of the crime can help investigators piece together answers and conclusions of just how a murder could have occurred. Whether a splatter, a gush, a large pool, or one simple drop, bloodstain pattern analysts conduct in-depth evaluations that help define the context in which a crime unfolded. If you couldn't tell already, this episode will feature a gory conversation that may not be easy to stomach, so listeners beware. Ross Gardner is vice president of Bevel Gardner & Associates, a forensic education and consulting group. He joins me today to explain what bloodstain pattern analysis is, its methodology, and how it can be used to uncover the truth behind a scene of a crime. Bloodstain pattern analysis is a long-standing discipline uh, that deals with physical aftermath of bloodshed. We're looking at the physical stains produced. And this is a discipline that has about a 170-year history in forensic science, uh, and that history is generally consistent. We start with a very basic foundational theory, and that is that blood as a fluid responds to forces in a predictable fashion. And under that overarching theory or three sub-theories, and that being pattern diversity, which is the most important, which is the one most people correlate back to blood stains. And that is when we look at a blood stain, effectively based on various physical characteristics, we can start to understand the nature of the force that produced it. So we have that basic idea. And a lot of people misunderstand that. Sometimes they think that this ability to recognize a pattern has something to do specifically with the crime scene. It's not. I I can't look at a pattern in and of itself, just the pattern, and say, oh, gosh, that's from a 38 uh, shot from five feet, or that's from somebody hitting somebody with a hammer. This discipline is class characteristic evidence. We are able to isolate basic groups, but those basic groups tell us nothing about a crime scene. They only tell us about the nature of the force. So kind of give you an idea, we can separate patterns uh, based on this idea of mechanism and how they will ultimately look into about six basic categories. Blood that has come under a force or an impulse. In other words, blood was at a point and it came under a force it had to displace, and it will do so in radiating patterns. And then we have blood that has been uh, accelerated and flung off an object. So blood adheres to something, a weapon, a hand, whatever. And then we accelerate that object, and suddenly the blood is overcome or by that motion and is flung off in distinct little patterns, which we refer to as cast off. And then we have blood. We can recognize when blood has been ejected in volume in a streaming ejection. Think of it as, you know, you're 
your garden hose, uh, the blood doesn't come out and or the water doesn't come out and just fall to the ground. It comes out in stream. That stream is then broken up by air resistance and gravity. And so that produces some distinctive patterns we refer to as spurts and gushes and things of that nature. And then, of course, we can tell when blood has simply fallen as a function of gravity, drips, drip trails, and the like. Uh, and then, of course, there are the accumulations, pools, flows, and whatever. And then the last uh, group is the contact, uh, where blood has been brought to a surface or transferred to a surface through some form of contact. So when I look at a blood stain pattern, in and of itself, all I can do is put it into this basic classes. It I recognize, okay, this probably belongs here. Uh, it can't belong to these others, which is significant because then I can apply that to a specific crime scene. Yeah. The other that. day while I was cooking, which happens all the time, I accidentally chopped into my finger. This happens all the time. Oh so... It literally looked like a homicide. And first of all, even just talking to you, I'm like having to lean my head against the back of my chair because it just makes me feel so faint. The amount of blood that comes out of a human, even from my, you know, small thumb slice. I mean, it was literally like a kitchen homicide. I, I Tell us about how that evaluation is conducted. You know, when you talk about these scenes of the crime, there, there is no shortage of this type of fluid evidence. for you. Yeah, the evidence. So how does that evaluation begin? And as a side, did you ever feel, were you always numb to this? Were you always like, yep, no, all the blood is no problem. Did you, did you go through a phase of like becoming used to it? Well, uh, First and foremost, in terms of scenes, you'd be surprised. And trust me, I've done the same, cut myself, and then you're leaving blood everywhere. Yeah. The interesting aspect of, of crime scenes is that sometimes we walk in and there is literally blood on every surface. And we're having to dig through that to find these patterns we were discussing. And that's hard. But you'll go into other homicides where it's a homicide. Somebody's been shot, stabbed, whatever. And suddenly there's very little blood and you can't, you never know what you're going to find till you walk in. As to the second part, I think it goes to the idea of the ability to separate what you're seeing from your emotions. I, it, that's how I've always explained it. Um, you can't look at a crime scene emotionally. You can't look at it. Oh, God, there's this poor human being who's been murdered. Oh, my God, look at all this blood. You you effectively have to look at it objectively. And I think the vast majority of good homicide detectives, good crime scene analysts, good bloodstain pattern analysts are able to do that um, every once in a while. It comes creeping back and kind of takes a toll on you. But for the most part, it's just that ability to look at it and say, hey, I've got a job here. These artifacts, this blood is information and I need to look at it objectively. So you talked about sort of initially classifying or starting to classify 
the blood pattern into one of those six, what does the remainder of the evaluation look like? How is that conducted upon you arriving well, to that crime scene? Well, we go through and as again, depending upon what the conditions are, we may have 10 significant blood stains. We may have a bunch and not every blood stain is particularly probative to a situation. What we're more interested in are the dynamically produced stains, the blood at a point source, that those radiating patterns are very helpful, the cast-off patterns, the projected patterns, the drip trails and drips, those tend to be probative in trying to understand what's going on. We first classify, and it just to be clear, those six basic mechanisms can be further broken out. There are about 16 basic classifications of bloodstain patterns. But what I do, once I understand what each of those patterns is, then we're looking at the second sub-theory, if you will. The pattern diversity is one of the sub-theories, the idea that these patterns will be produced through this these mechanisms. Uh, the second one is the idea of stain shape and vector correlation. And this theory basically says that certain blood stains will give indications or information relevant to their source in three dimensions and or their direction of travel at the time of deposition. So we're looking at the idea of motion. So now I recognize, for instance, this impact pattern. Somebody was hit with something uh, or and the blood will displace out in a radiating pattern that I will recognize. Okay, having realized, okay, this is the kind of pattern I have, then I'm looking at the stain shape and vector aspect and say, okay, what's that tell me about where the source of the blood was? All right, with that information, now we have to bring our understanding of the blood stain and what it's telling us and put that in that unique scene context. Because like I said, a blood stain in and of itself doesn't tell me about a crime. I have to say, okay, in this scene, what mechanisms of the nature I'm finding, you know, uh, impact, blood at a point source, okay, what mechanisms were in play in this scene that could produce that kind of a pattern? And if we're really lucky, there's not a lot. Somebody was hit once or twice, or but maybe somebody was hit with a hammer and then they were shot. Well, both of those mechanisms have the ability to produce this impact pattern I'm seeing. And effectively, we go through this process of identifying the pattern, figuring out what it tells motion and direction. And then we start looking at that scene and trying to isolate, if possible, what is the scene mechanism. Is this when he was shot? Is this when he was beaten? Is this just uh, expiration? They had blood in his, his airway and he's breathing out. So eventually we go from this class idea down to this that unique scene and try to make sense of it in that regard. We recently recorded um, an episode where we covered the Candy Montgomery case in which she killed her friend and neighbor, Betty Gore, um, as determined by the jury in self-defense, uh, but with an axe. Mm -hmm. 
And when the neighbors first arrived at the scene, they thought that she had been shot due to how bloody the scene was. And I'm sure part of that included that no one ever anticipates what an axe murder would look like. But um, can can you share, you know, all of this scientific explanation? Will you please describe some some crime scenes or cases that reflected this this analysis that you just walked us through or, or perhaps interesting cases where there were different types of patterns or how that, you know, how you were tested and, and sort of unusual circumstances or ones that have stayed with you? Well, it, it's not uncommon uh, that we come in and, and we're kind of in the blind. And that's good because, again, we start with the physical pattern. I'm trying to think of a case in which uh, the initial information flowing back was suggesting a gunshot, for instance. But then you get into the medical examiner and suddenly you're finding out you're dealing with uh, stabbing. Uh, one of my first homicides ever, a uh, taxi cab driver at Fort Lewis, Washington, that was exactly the case. We arrived at the scene, we're dealing with the crime scene. And, you know, all we're really getting from the scene itself are the blood stains from the wounds. We're not getting the dynamic patterns. And so they it wasn't helpful in understanding what the the source was per se in terms of the injury. And like I said, we were working on the basis of he'd been shot. That's what we were told. Well, the next day we find I'd been stabbed 26 times. So there's always this this point of confusion. Sometimes what you get up front is biased. Worked a scene uh, some years ago, the McDessie case. And this was kind of problematic in the sense that, and this was in Virginia, these patterns are, sometimes they just stand out to us. So in this case, this woman uh, had been tied to a bed, allegedly raped and allegedly killed by this intruder. We're looking at the circumstances of where the intruder who was then shot by the husband was. And we're seeing a series of stains that are on a doorway that are this spurt idea, this idea of projected blood coming out in a stream, but it's not complete. Well, then we get a hold of his pants, the husband's pants. And what we're going to find is that pattern continued on to the pants. And so in that instance, when we see the two together, they're they're disparate, they're, uh, they're apart from each other. But once we see the two together, they come back. I mean, we can visualize that pattern more effectively, and it tells us something about where he was uh, specifically. I'm trying to think of a, a case where we've been completely misdirected by a pattern. Believe it or not, we can't read every pattern. There are these things that we refer to as complex patterns. Many of the patterns we encounter, we can put in these little boxes that we've identified, a spurt, a cast off, impact, and so forth. But we will encounter patterns that are either A, ambiguous. In other words, the characteristics are not distinct or not all present or they're on a surface where they're muted. And so we can't really read that kind of pattern effectively. 
or we'll encounter patterns that we can't make any sense out of. I mean, none. They just don't fit because they have characteristics of multiple types of patterns. And complex patterns are very problematic. I had one in West Virginia where husband was shot with a shotgun, took out the vertebral column. And so we know there was uh, an arterial source ongoing in the scene. In fact, that was very evident. Uh, but on a wall adjacent uh, the refrigerator was this pattern that on first blush would have suggested arterial because it was complex. It had some aspects of the, the, the characteristics I'm looking for. But it's only on the wall and there's nothing on the floor and you're going, okay, wait a minute. If this guy is ejecting this blood out and we know where he was, he was in the middle of the floor, then we would expect these stains to be both on the wall and on the floor. They're not all going to make it to the wall, but there were none. And so this pattern is just driving me crazy because I can't understand it until I get some context. And later in, and we try to keep the context out until the end because it's bias. But it, later on, we hear uh, her explanation. And after she shot him, he went to the floor. And she described him as being a little fountain, which makes complete sense. Blood was just churning up uh, from the vertebral. It, uh, he, he got shot in the mouth. Anyway, bottom line is she felt she had to do something at that point. So she initiated first aid. And when she initiated first aid, what's first aid? Clear the airway, stop the bleeding, control the shock. Well, all this blood's coming out of his mouth and she was just reaching in with her hand and she was flinging this, this volume across. And we've ultimately had this pattern in a couple different places. So again, here's a pattern that I can't make any sense out of based on the crime scene and the injuries. And ultimately I get some scene context that helps me understand what caused it. But there are other cases where we walk into a scene, we see a pattern, one of these complex patterns, and and we just walk away and say, hey, it's there. I can't tell you specifically how it came to be. So it's not like we go into every crime scene and just going to read it from A to Z. That just doesn't happen. We'll be right back with more of this story. And so when you encounter these more challenging crime scenes in that way, and then at the end when the mystery is solved, in my words, are you always like science always wins out? You know, like there's always a physical explanation. Like there's always that vector, the force, et cetera. Like it always makes sense. There's always a scientific explanation and that never fails. Are you always sort of encouraged or reassured or triumphant in the penultimate, you know, rules of science? I hear you. Well, yeah. I mean, the we do crime scene analysis. The basic kind of foundational theory of crime scene analysis is that nothing just happens. And we can articulate that a little more effectively is that given an incident, which is made up of a series of subset actions, any given action has a direct or has a, a causal and temporal relationship with every other action. Nothing just happens. So, yeah, 
when we get like in the the Virginia the West Virginia case where I've got this pattern on the wall caused by the lady throwing blood, that makes sense. Uh, suddenly, I can correlate that action, the combination of actions and the combination of blood that she was interacting with, and it makes absolute sense. So yeah, it's fluid dynamics at its heart. We only deal with the top level of fluid dynamics. We're dealing with the primary effects. I mean, there's secondary, tertiary, quaternary, right down to the quantum level. It's all physics. But bottom line, yeah, I absolutely, you know, there has to be an explanation. But again, I make the point that there are times when we're looking at it and we weren't there for this very dynamic event. And we may not be able to explain it because we can't visualize how the forces and the blood were interacting in some fashion. There are those cases. Uh, but yeah, I'm absolutely believe in the, the the discipline and the science. If we practice the science appropriately, we get good answers. Uh, and if we apply ourselves objectively, we're able to give juries good information that they can then decide uh, what they have to decide. Yeah. So how about, how is BPA presented in court? What does that testimony look like? And what challenges, if any, are brought during testimony? What barbs do you have to defend against as this evidence is presented in a trial? In trial, you think about bloodstream pattern analysis. What does it do? Well, through our evaluation, we're able to identify generally what activities or actions were ongoing and where they were ongoing act within that scene. Okay. So you think about a trial, you think about what needs to be brought out to the jury. The jury needs to understand what's happening who's involved, you know, and they are given different versions of theories. You got the prosecutor's theory, you got the defense counsel's theory. And with all due respect to lawyers, lawyers operate on a cognitive basis called confirmation bias. They start with a belief, then they choose that information that that helps improve that, ignoring all other. Well, the jury's got to decide, and it doesn't really matter whether it's come from the prosecution or the defense, the jury has to decide if part of that theory makes sense. So the bloodstain patterns very often, for instance, the defense claims, well, what happened really was he found his wife in this condition, he cradled her in his arm, and that's the reason these blood stains are on his shirt. Okay, that may be true, but the point goes back to what kind of pattern is it? If there's small circular elliptical stains in a radiating distribution, got news for you, that eliminates any possibility that it was caused by contact or any, any of the other methods that demands that he was in proximity to some point when blood was being displaced outward, you know, impact of some nature. So generally, we're either trying to explain to the jury the, the general flow of what's happening in the scene, or we're dealing with these specific hypotheticals. You know, 
this pattern was caused by this. And then we can either refute it or corroborate it, or maybe we can't do either. And we say, hey, blood stain pattern analysis isn't going to tell you that. So those those are the two ways that blood stain pattern analysis is generally presented to the jury or to the trier of fact. And then in terms of uh, how is it attacked and, and, and what we have to put up with, and again, I, I apologize, but I am a uh, I'm a lawyer basher, mm-hmm. uh, legal, legal opinion or a legal system basher. Lawyers don't really care about the background. What they're going to do is they're going to get up and you, I mean, when I first came in this business, you say, well, what same power analysis was created by Herbert McDonnell in 1970. And that simply wasn't true. There was 150, well, 120 years before Herb ever showed up. They go, well, it's subjective. Well, it can be practiced subjectively. Absolutely. Uh, one of the biggest problems with bloodstain pattern analysis in, in the courtroom is judges will let a guy who had an eight-hour seminar get up and talk about it because he thinks it's just that simple. I had a federal judge in uh, New York City start lecturing me while I was on the stand. You can't say that because this is this. And you go, give me a friggin' break. Just because you comes out of your mouth doesn't mean it's true. And the lawyers will attack the BPA uh, in the sense of, well, it's not quantitative like DNA. DNA is a quantitative analysis. Blood stain patterns are a qualitative analysis. And if you as a if, if you deal with science and you don't want to understand the distinction, well, it's problematic. And they try to force it to do more than it can do. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting because I had one lawyer in uh, Washington, D.C., a prosecutor who attacked bloodstain pattern analysis as a discipline and said, oh, no, it's not real. It's not right. It's not this. Well, I was on the stand. And then two hours later, he put a bloodstain pattern analyst on the stand to tell the jury what what he wanted heard. And there's no rhyme or reason to the attacks. They just come at us from all these different angles. And it's kind of disheartening in honesty. Mm. It, it truly is. And, and a bloodstain pattern conclusion is never going to be a DNA conclusion. It's not the same thing. Uh, but it does give probative information. And, and it will always give probative information. Uh, it's rare the bloodstains don't tell us something. So, you know, we we deal with it as it flies at us. And uh, sometimes there's a whole lot of stuff flying in a courtroom and we just deal with it. Like I say, most times it's about you don't have a history. You're, you don't have a scientific history. Well, we can go back to 1856 in the Führerjahr Schliff for is that right? Gearzlicke Medicine. The Führerjahr quarter year writings for forensic medicine. It was the journal of the day in Europe, similar to the journal forensic identification journal of uh, uh, the American Academy's journal. It was a scientific journal. We can go back all that way to 1856 and find these 
discussions of blood stain pattern analysis. So usually most of the attacks are just ill-informed. They they don't they don't know what they're they're just making noise effectively. I get on my soapbox with them because my bottom line is I don't care. My job is to inform counsel. And then they decide whether that information has value to a jury. That's my sole function. And I just tell it like it is. If the other side asks a question and <laughs> your side didn't want it answered, they probably shouldn't have put you on the stand because they're going to know what I can or can't say before I ever get on the stand. That's fun, too. Trust me. <laughs> And, and you mentioned, you know, sort of this, it's a, a finite qualitative analysis, but not without at some point a limitation. So what, what, what are the limitations of blood stain well, pattern analysis? Well, go back to the idea. It's not an individual characteristic evidence. A fingerprint is an individual characteristic evidence. It can point you to a person. DNA can point you to a person. Blood stains are a class characteristic evidence. All the blood stain does is it isolates the basic mechanism. And then the problem gets back to what we described. I'm in a scene where perhaps there are multiple mechanisms that might explain this pattern. For instance, I might have a cast off pattern in the victim's blood. And you, in the context of that scene, we know the victim was beaten. All right. Is this cast off a function of whatever they were being beaten, being swung? Or I, in that same scene, I see that they have blood on their hands in significant quantity. In other words, they got bloody during the fight. Well, that might explain the cast off. So you're always limited by that scene context. It is class characteristic. It's best... All class characteristic evidence is best for refutation. In other words, I may not be able to isolate what caused the cast off, but seeing the cast off, I know it's not from any other mechanism. Kind of going back to that idea, oh, I cradled my wife. These stains are from that. Well, that's the most effective use of blood stain paralysis. If if it is, great. But if it's not, it's refuted with certainty. So you always have to balance forensic evidence based on what it can do for you. Class characteristic evidence, individual characteristic evidence, uh, they are two very different things. And they give different information and different values to a criminal investigation. What is the farthest you've ever seen blood carried or travel? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, cast off, when you're swinging something that's particularly bloody, you can get cast off that are moving 15, 20 feet, honestly, the little droplets. If you got a projection, uh, you hit a carotid artery, a femoral artery, and there's no baffling to the surface, you could eject quite a ways. Um, other than that, the spatter themselves, uh, you, you know, when you you get impact spatter, I'm, I'm applying force to that blood at a point source and it's displacing outward. Those tend not to travel quite as far. They uh, 
they may go, and it's all dependent upon the size of the droplet too. Again, it's physics. The smaller droplets, the really sub-millimeter droplets, they might travel four to eight or nine feet, whereas a larger droplet might travel, you know, 15 feet. I never really thought about how far it is because that's not really an aspect of the analysis per se. Um, what I'm concerned with is obviously, and, and you, when you're talking about this idea, let's say you're you're worried about finding some spatter on a person, the little droplets flying through the air, land and make these little circular elliptical stains. Okay. And you're worried, well, was that person in proximity to the event? Well, I don't have to worry about the physics of how far the droplet could have gone. What I do is I go back in the scene and I compare the scene conditions. In this instance, the spatter is uh, effectively, say, in a six or seven foot radius of the victim. Finding similar spatter, same DNA and so forth, well, that's going to tell me that if they're associated, then that person was in a similar proximity. So I'm not really concerned with the physics, although we have some programs that you can kind of work the numbers that'll say, well, a droplet will go this far or can go this far. But there's too many variables. You don't, these are crime scene variables you have no understanding of. So you can't really use that kind of information, if you will. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes complete sense. And I sort of was imagining in my theatrical mind, you know, some type of meticulously clean crime scene where the killer had made every attempt to ensure there wasn't blood spatter or something, but you guys found it, you know. Oh, you'd be surprised. Far away they or, you know, that. some evidence. Nah, they do that all the time. And, you know, try and clean up crime scenes. Well, first and foremost, you can't, they clean it visually. In other words, they start cleaning what they can see. And what they fail to understand is that we can come in with enhancement techniques, uh, enhancement chemicals that will illustrate what was there because they only clean to a level of visual. It doesn't appear to be here. But just the same going to your initial point is the particularly in impact events, these you know dynamic events when somebody's shot or beaten or whatever. You get these radiating distributions out into the scene and they're going everywhere. And so people will clean what they can see. But nine times out of 10, you come back into the scene and some of these are, are sub millimeter. I mean, they're 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3 millimeter size stains. And unless you're really looking, you're never going to see them. And we'll find those even after they've cleaned or they thought they cleaned, uh, which is you know, kind of interesting because, again, there's no such thing as the perfect crime scene. People have always questioned me and said, well, you know, you you do crime scene analysis, you do blood state power analysis, you've been working crime scenes your whole life. Could you stage a crime scene perfectly? And the simple fact of the matter is I think the answer is no. I really believe the answer is no. I could do a pretty good job, I'm pretty sure, but you can't control everything. You just you just don't know where all these little bits and pieces are going to go. 
So it's not so much how far away it is. Sometimes it's it's right there in front of them or it's on the ceiling, two or three stains on the ceiling when they got the walls and they never looked up. Another kitchen story, because that's where all of my, all, apparently all of my experience comes from. Um, but the other day I was, I took the last sip of water in my cup. So I, I was looking up at the ceiling as doing so and discovered that, my partner who had exploded an egg earlier, like weeks earlier, had failed to your point to clean up all of the egg explosion. And on my ceiling, which is really high, there was a tiny piece of egg, which was so gross. And to your well, point, you would never have seen it otherwise. And nor in his cleanup would he have seen it otherwise or thought to look up so high in the ceiling for something that exploded 12 feet and that is the point. It, these are tiny little traces of evidence, these little stains in particular. Uh, and try as they might, they're never going to capture them all. I have my own kitchen story <clears throat> many years ago. Uh, my wife was in the kitchen chopping uh, carrots and celery. I think it was for a stew, if I remember correctly, uh, on the chopping board. And she slipped and she... I swear she took a piece off, a little piece off the end of the, the finger. Oh. And uh, she was reaching for something to to stem the bleeding. And I said, I yelled over, I said, let it bleed. Mm. She's <laughs> never really forgotten me or forgiven me for forgotten that or forgiven me for that. But that's the nature of bloodstained pattern people. <laughs> you remind me of our professors at University of Washington when we had that big earthquake in 2001 or 2000. And the geology professor was like, yes, it's an earthquake, like so excited. And the whole rest of the campus was terrified. You love the blood spatter. <laughs> visually experiencing blood is very interesting. And as a police officer, I have had more occasions than I would like to remember in which I've done that. But it gives us a better understanding sometimes. It, it helps us kind of refine the way we look at the situation. Uh, you know, I've spurts, you'd think, oh gosh, a spurt is just, you know, just going to come out of the ways. Nah, they can go a long ways. And experience one in person, you know, like a small scout, uh, scalp uh, wound, it, it's pretty interesting because you start to better visualize uh, all this. And I was trained many, many years ago as an EMT and I rode the buses. And so I got to see some of that in person and uh, worked in the ER. It was part of my training. So it's, yeah, we're fascinated by it. I mean, honestly, if if we're being true and people think we're crazy, when you get a group blood same pattern people mm -hmm. uh, together and they're in a IHOP or whatever, uh, you don't want to be sitting next to them when they're having their conversations. <laughs> I know I was thinking about that. My father was a career pathologist and, um, you know, the certification or, or whatever it's called in, in phlebotomy at one point. So, you know, growing up, I always bought him vampire cards for, you know, birthday and Father's Day and blood bank jokes and whatever. And, um, you know, it's a... a sort of double-edged sword because obviously I'm a curious individual. So I would ask him to tell me all of these stories and then immediately faint. And say, Stop, I can't hear anymore. So you strike me as the ideal um, dinner party guest, but maybe for the after 
<laughs> for the after dinner cocktails. Probably. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Our business is, it goes back to your original question. The business is unfortunately very taxing on most people. It's gross. It's, it's hard to fathom the inhumanity of one person to another sometimes. And so, you know, it, it, that goes back to, to be competent. You have to look at it. This is a scene. This body isn't a person anymore. This body is evidence. But we, we deal with that pretty routinely. And again, we get certainly a little distant. Sometimes, some, uh, sometimes we come across cold when we're in front of a jury. Uh, they can read or they can feel the way we're describing it's too cold. We're not, we're not seeing the humanity, but then again, I'm not there for that purpose. Uh, you know, I, I'm there to look at it from the objective point of view. Yes. And the way I look at it, you know, I want my physician to be clinical. I want my blood spatter analyst to be scientific when I want emotion, I'll, I'll go to a therapist. You know, when I talk to my lawyer, I want a, a, a bulldog, right? The, the whole point is when you have an expert and when something so serious and important and fundamental as justice, as victims, as all of that law enforcement, you want who the individual in charge and you want the expert to absolutely have the stomach for it and to have the experience and the education for it, all of it. Hundred um, percent. Yeah. Objectivity in forensics is the most difficult thing, and because you're always, you, I mean, we are all subjective, we are all biased, and you're always guarding against that subjectivity flittering in, whether it be from information that you're getting from coworkers or from vict, uh, victims' families, whatever. You you got to guard against it. Well, Mr. Gardner, this has been so fascinating. I love talking to you. I really do wish that we could be at the same reception at one point so that I could just pick your brain and hear these stories all night because it's fascinating. Um, most importantly, thank you for your service. Thank you for the countless lives that um, you've impacted positively with the purpose and the conclusion of justice and answers. Thank you, Emily. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.